Thank you for joining us today on Geezers of Gear. Today's podcast is brought to you by GearSource and the new G3 Marketplace. The best place for used gear is about to get so much better. Beginning this summer, sellers will gain more power over your listings, advanced AI to help you make pricing and timing-based decisions, an automation-supported shipping system, lower selling costs, advanced marketing tools, a new cross-rental platform, and near-instant payment availability. But how about your own branded G site where you can promote your company branding and all of your listings in one centralized location, but still with all the same tools as the main site? The G3 platform will offer global marketplace capabilities rivaling companies hundreds of times the size in a true dual-sided marketplace. For more information, visit Gearsource.com today and ask about the new G3 platform for all of your listings. La 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 la. I love Gatto. I love that song. I miss Canadian music, Canadian rock music. I think most of you know I am Canadian and I grew up listening to Rush and Triumph and Gatto and uh, another band that I actually just saw on a podcast this morning with uh there's a band called Tuke which is made up of some guys from other bands and including part of Slash's uh band that tours with him and <clears throat> this band Tuke does covers of um Canadian bands including Harlequin Streetheart Rush etc 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 Loverboy and um they're really really good i mean you can listen to their music on spotify or apple music or whatever or you could actually go out to a store and buy a cd god forbid but anyways Tuke is doing a podcast right now um that they're not able to tour and play and stuff and it's actually pretty good i've listened to it a few times but today they had uh they had eddie trunk and they had a guy named andy curran who was in uh, a Canadian band and is in a Canadian band again, I guess, because I think they've sort of come back again, um, called uh, Coney Hatch. And so, you know, Coney Hatch was another of those 80s bands that did pretty well in Canada. I don't think they really got outside of Canada that much. I think they're sort of mildly popular in Europe. And I think some Americans have heard of it. I've heard a few of the songs on American sort of uh, classic rock radio and stuff. The big hits, especially like Monkey Bars was one of their big ones. And uh, But anyways, feeling a bit nostalgic listening to my Gatto intro here. And um, so I thought I'd bring that up. Actually, I just came up with it as soon as the music faded and I had to say something. So here I am. Anyways, thanks for joining me today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 110. 110 episodes later, and a coronavirus and all kinds of other things that have happened. I dumped my co-host along the way, and uh, 
And here we are. It just keeps getting better all the time. And it's not because of me. I haven't done anything differently. It's because of our guests. And we keep getting really great guests and fun guests and guests who have some stuff to talk about. And sometimes those guests are, you know, sort of true to the meaning of the word geezer. They're old like me or even older than me in many cases. And sometimes they're actually not. And so today's guest came to me as sort of a non-geezer, a young guy who, uh, you know, has done uh, really well in his career so far. But um, he came in and said, hey, I'm kind of interesting. Would you have me on the podcast? And I kind of checked him out and figured out who he was and everything else. And, and he's actually a pretty cool guy and is part of a very cool company with a very storied history. And um, so that company is called Pyrotechnico. And this gentleman's name is Rocco Vitali, which is a very fun name that would, uh, you know, sorry for the generalisms or stereotypes, but you'd fit in really well in pretty much any uh, sort of 80s, 90s mob movie or in The Sopranos. You know, you could be Tony Soprano's best friend. Hey, Rocco Vitali, you know, let's go grab a pizza. But uh, anyways, that was a really bad New York accent. I apologize, Rocco, and I apologize to the world who's listening. But anyways, really cool guy, really great company. Um, Also the COO, Bob Ross. So please welcome Bob Ross and Rocco Vitali from Pyrotechnico. Well, hello, guys, and welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode number 110. Must be a lucky number. I don't know. And so I have with me today Rocco, Jesus Rocco, you just told me how to say your last name because I've been saying the Americanized way, which I no, said. No, you've been saying it the right way. Uh, we go the Americanized oh, way. Oh, you go. Vital. Vital. I said Vitali. Yeah. Rocco Sounds Vitali. Sounds so much better that way. Yeah. Well, also in my intro, I made you uh, Tony Soprano's right-hand guy and nice. said that you have a perfect name for any, you know, any uh, gangster movie going back 50, 60 years. And, you know, it is a great name. I mean, if you're going to have an Italian name, it might as well be Rocco Vitale. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad one. I like it. And we also have Bob Ross. And so both, both of these gentlemen are from a company called Pyrotechnico. And it's a company I know a little bit about just from, you know, their press, basically. These guys, this company for something like 125 years now, has done uh, virtually all of the biggest pyro and fireworks uh, displays and tours and everything else that's been going on in this in this country and uh, possibly even beyond this country. I don't know the answer to that, so we'll talk about that. But first of all, I mean, welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us, sir. Yeah. No, thank you guys for coming. And that will be the last sir that we'll hear on today's <laughs> podcast as well, uh, especially, especially from my fellow Canadians. So I found out on the uh, little pre-discussion here that Bob is Canadian like me. He's from Toronto. And um, so I don't know if you know this, Bob. Excuse me. I got a cough. But um, our intro and outro music is a gentleman who's also from uh, Toronto. Actually, he's from uh, not Mississauga, not Sudbury. What's... Oh, my God. I can't remember the name of the friggin' suburb of Toronto that he's from, but... um, North or South? (laughs) Greg Godovitz. 
from a band called Gatto, which is probably older than you. Um, you know, they were big in the 70s and 80s. And so I was a fan and I became a friend of his, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. And uh, so anyways, that's our intro music is a Canadian artist named Gatto. So anyways, um, I'm, I started doing every time we get on a podcast, I always do a little bit of research on who the guests are and, and where they come from and, and those types of things. And um, I got a little bit excited here because I didn't know a lot of these things. I really didn't know much about the company at all and nor about either of you. Um, so first, starting with Rocco, um, from what I understand and from what I've read, this is a family business that began in 1889. And that alone is incredible. Yeah, it, it, it is. You know, the, the company, you know, we're into our fifth generation um, at this point. Um, you know, uh, Stephen, uh, my brother, runs the company and his daughter Mia is in the business. You know, she's, she's the fifth generation. You know, she, uh, she's a special effects technician. For, she's a touring tech and, you know, she was on the road with Dan and Shay before COVID-19 hit and she was out with them. And, um, you know, so company stretches all the way back to like our great grandfather emigrated over, um, from Italy and, you know, settled upon a little town North of Pittsburgh called uh, Newcastle, Pennsylvania. It's about 45 minutes away from Pittsburgh, close to the Ohio border, about, about 15 miles from Youngstown, Ohio is, is probably the, his name was Constantino, right? Yes. Constantino Vitali. And so, um, so Constantino was in the fireworks business in the 1800s in Italy first, was he not? They were, they were, they, this was, this was hobby. So they came to the United States looking for work and the the Pittsburgh area had, you know, steel and tin mill work and these fam heavily Italian immigrated uh, population in, in Newcastle at one point in the twenties, you know, there was seven fireworks companies there that all these what? Italian immigrants came, yeah, came over and, um, they were hobbyists at night and then businesses were created out of them essentially. So at one point there was, there was seven Italian families who had, uh, fireworks display companies in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. It is deemed the fireworks capital of America. Why? fireworks companies from Italy though like did fireworks I I never looked up the origin of fireworks or anything I'm sure I'm about to learn but is it Italy yeah a lot of a lot of Italian uh fireworks history there and it was always a it was a trait essentially hobby and these you know this is what they would do they would build their own fireworks and make their own fireworks and and then it became uh you know, our family created a business out of it. And really, it really just started on weekends because they had yeah. their, they were in the tin mills during the weeks. And, uh, it was Stephen Rocco's brothers explained to me, Marcel, they really kind of started as some of the, the first roadies. They would go on trains, um, around the surrounding areas with the local fairs. And while riding the train, they were sitting there making their fireworks Oh, try doing that now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I can't even get a big lighter or somebody's on a plane. But, uh, right, a couple right. of sketchy dudes sitting in first class on a train 
They're you making know, putting ex- mixing fun. explosives, right? Yeah, that'll yeah. go over really, really well. You know, yeah. So, uh, have you ever like researched either of you researched really the 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 origin of fireworks? Like, did it come from bob- bombs blowing up in the air and somebody went, "Hey, I'm going to make a display out of this," or you know, how did it start? Like, when did somebody decide to take a rocket that you would normally aim at an enemy? And point it up in the air to celebrate something. You know, it probably should have, but I've never, I have never researched that. Like that, at that point of like, I haven't. That is a, it's a great question. Well, for our next podcast, I would like to know the answer to that. You would like to know the answer. I'm writing that one down. You have homework now. Okay. Cause I (laughs) need to know what the origin of fireworks was. There had to be a reason at some point that somebody thought it was a good idea to, to take these rockets and instead of pointing them at Germany or France or something to point them up in the air and, uh, and, you know, celebrate something. And yeah, I, make celebrations my guess, with them. like most things, it had something to do with wartime and, and battling. And at the end of a battle, they would aim their rockets up in the air and it became something from there. I don't know, you know, like in, in Canada, I remember growing up, my, my, uh, my stepfather told me that, um, the the history of why you didn't want to get your cigarette lit by the third light mm-hmm. and it it had yeah. to do with with battles where you know if a uh, if a soldier was sitting and and lighting his cigarette what would happen is you know these guys enemies are looking around through their field glasses and they would see a light and then on the second one they would aim and on the third one they'd actually Oof. fire fire yeah and so from that point on it was like forget it i ain't taking that light (laughs) you know somebody else get over here and smoke here's mine smoke mine you know and my grandfather actually told me that oh really yeah 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 exactly yeah Yeah. Um, the the spanish were also uh some of the originators of fireworks as well and still make some of the most beautiful shells that exist out there really yeah we work with Um, But mostly all started around celebration. You know, honestly, I mean, I guess I'm just a typical, you know, ignorant North American who assumed that it was just an American thing, fireworks celebration. So I was even surprised just to see that in the 1800s that this guy, Constantino, came over to the United States and and became a fireworks guy and had been doing fireworks uh, in Italy as well. So I didn't didn't realize that at all. So, you know, so you're born into the Vitali yeah. family. And yep. at what point are you exposed to fireworks uh, as a kid? I mean, it, I, the earliest memories that I have of fireworks were very vivid to me is, is that in the 80s when my father ran the business, we, pro- I don't know how many years in a row we did it, but we were the producers of the uh, – the Washington Monument display uh, on July 4th in D.C. And every summer, I used to take a trip down there with my father. And um, and that was, we went to that show every year. Wow. And, um, I, and, and I think it was Stephen recently sent me a, there, there's a picture that I, he just sent me um, of, you know, the, the site was like around the reflecting pool. And there's like me as like a little kid sitting like in the reflecting pool, like it, like up to my legs in water and like they're setting up all the fireworks around. Oh, so I was like so on this cool. site 
Yeah, it was that was. And like you were what, like it. four or five years old or something? Yeah, probably six to seven. Yeah, somewhere yeah. in there. Wow. And, and, and that, those were my earliest memories of uh, of it. Yeah. It was was that show in particular? And and so, at what age were you able to actually like? Was was dad bringing home you know firecrackers or sparklers or whatever something that kind kind of exposed you you know firsthand to fireworks, <laughs> or was he just bringing big stuff home and going, "Here, kid, you like this?" Well, we 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 were we were still manufacturing at that time, and and I. This is another early fireworks memory that I had was that I was with my father at the office one day and he got a phone call and he's like, wait, come on, we're going to go for a ride. I'm like, okay, what's up? Well, fireworks at this time were not consumer fireworks were not legal in Pennsylvania. And we were so close to the Ohio border that somebody had set up a store or a stand of consumer fireworks. And I don't know what happened here. Long story short, the building was in Pennsylvania. And all I know is we went down to this store and all I know is the company was called Vital Fireworks at the time. My dad, I don't know what kind of side deal he cut or whatever. (laughs) All I know is there was all these Vital Fireworks trucks backed up to this consumer store loading all this stuff into our trucks. Wow. And then from that point on, we had like four 53-foot containers on the property that was full of consumer products. And every 4th of July, I'd I'd go up to the plant with my buddies and we'd bring a pickup truck up there. And I'd be like, can I get the keys to the class C magazines? And they would give me the keys and we would go fill up um, the backs of pickup trucks with cases of fireworks. I got in trouble one time. (laughs) We got in trouble one time, me and my buddies for lighting fireworks off in places we shouldn't have. And we were being questioned and everyone had to say their name and like, what's your name? And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I said my name, and they're like, oh, we have a Vital here. Because it was like, not a s- small town I grew up in. Right, so it was right. very, very clear that I was related to the family who had the fireworks company. Right. And yeah, we, so we caused some. Didn't some you just back pull then. out your like pyro card from your uh, wallet or something I saying, was, I'm a, I'm I was a like, licensed <laughs> exploder guy? I was 14, I think, at the time. Yeah. So no. Wow. So, yeah. What a, what a so, cool, uh, you know, what a cool family you know, sort of business to be a part of though. So I got to tell you a funny story. So uh, I think Bob could also attest to this in Canada. I think to this day, like those consumer fireworks that you're talking about are still not available in Canada. I mean, you you know, you can buy sparklers and ridiculous little things, but you can't, you can't buy these like finale boxes and stuff that you buy here. Right. And so when I was a kid, I don't even remember that you could buy like little firecrackers or anything. So you know, I grew up without any access to that stuff. Any fireworks displays we saw were professional ones. And which, you know, by the way, I think wouldn't be a terrible idea still today. But, you know, that's just my personal opinion. But um, so I was dating this woman at the time who lived in Chicago. She eventually became my wife and then my ex-wife. And um, but I was dating her and I flew to Chicago for a party. And it might have been a Fourth of July party. I think it was actually. And we went to a, a this party at, at her friend's house, and um, they handed me a thing that I think was an M80. I'm not sure, but they hand me this thing and go, 
light it and throw it. And I go, or no, I think it was lit already. And he hands it to me and goes, throw it. And I'm like, shit. So I threw it over the <laughs> fence into their neighbor's yard. And oh, wow. I mean, it made the loudest boom. And I was like, holy shit, that was great. Give me another one. And so anyways, about 15 minutes later, the police showed up and came into the backyard right as they were putting like three or four of these M80s underneath a tire because they wanted to see what it was going to do to a tire. And it shot it, I don't know, 150 feet in the air or something like forever it went up. And anyways, um, they said, you know, you guys need to tame it down a bit. And he goes, oh, no, it's just all these little fireworks. And he goes, I think you're using something a little bigger than little fireworks. And, right. and uh, my buddy Dale goes, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you kind of blew up your neighbor's garden. <laughs> and I'm like, oops, sorry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of my first exposure to, you know, the Americanized uh, sort of publicly available fireworks that you could kind of get. Although M80s, I think, were still pretty underground and maybe are today. I don't know. But I, uh, uh, <clears throat> it was a, a Canadian moment, you know, we go out in the winter and do some ice fishing with some friends. And uh, I had just started getting into pyrotechnics after college. And, you know, the traditional concussion you hear at a loud concert that, yeah. like, you know, thumping boom. Yeah. Well, we go out ice fishing and, of course, we're having a few beers and lazy. And we're like, and I said, to the guys, I'm like, we don't need to, you know, bore a hole or oh, auger no. hole. I'm like, I got this concussion. So I like chip in with a pocket knife, a little hole and drop the concussion in and step back with a piece of zip line and a battery. And I light the thing thinking I'm going to make this nice hole. But what I ended up doing was like creating like thousands of spider fractures across the ice we're standing on. Now me and my buddies are all standing there and oh, oh, man. the crack and water's coming through Man, we hightailed Slowly it. Slowly so falling quick. in the water. Yeah. yeah so we didn't but did all the fish through. just kind of float up to the top and you just kind of <laughs> bagged them all and took them home? I didn't stand there long enough to see. Yeah, I was yeah, getting that's off true. that ice. Well, I remember when, uh, you know, I'd go fishing with my parents when I was a little kid, and occasionally you'd see some, you know, redneck hoodlum throwing dynamite into the water or whatever, you know, and and fishing by explosive. But uh, not not really a great way to do it, I guess. So, um, so just to keep on this story of your childhood and, and how this was and stuff, First of all, did you have any option? <laughs> like, were you could yeah, you could you go absolutely. up to your dad and say, "Dad, I want to be a you know a hockey player, or I want to you know do something else"? Well, it was, it's interesting the way that the timeline of the of the business you know went. Whereas, is like you know, my father, um, I graduated high school in 1996. You know, he. You know, Stephen always says this. Uh, we don't even sure that he want. He sounded like he was forced into it. And you know, we're Stephen. Uh, we don't even know if he wanted to be in the business. Yeah. He uh, he got out of it early. Um, you know, he he. Stephen took the business over at, at nine in nineteen ninety three at the ripe age of twenty six. Oh, okay. so he was. So Stephen took the business over. Um, you know, at 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 a young age, and um, you know. It was, you know, my, we don't, I was young at that point. Like, I, we don't, my father just wasn't into it anymore. Don't even know if he ever was, you know yeah, what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and he, he just, just, he told Stephen, he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And you want it, you can have it. And, you know, left Stephen in a, candidly, it was a little bit of a distressed situation. And, and Stephen, you know, 
at 26, you know, I, geez, I remember when I was 26 and like for him to take that on and to grow it to, to where it is now is, is, yeah. is, 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 is amazing, yeah. is yeah. remarkable. So, so, you know, when I, so when I graduated high school in 96, I was a summer job for me. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, I would probably say that the first two years I did it, um, it was, it was literally a summer job for me. Yeah. It was a summer job to, to buy, get beer money and do whatever. And, right. you know, just, it, that's what it was for me. And, um, I don't know. It was like when I was 18, one summer, it, it like, it grabbed me. And, and I don't know what that moment was or what it was that happened to me, but it just kind of got its grips into me. And, um, I spent, you know, and, and Steven was a believer cause that's where he started. You didn't start anywhere. You were, you started at the bottom, but we all started at the bottom and he started by, you know, painting pipe when he was 13 years old. And I started in a warehouse unloading 4th of July trucks. Yeah. And that's we all started at the bottom. We have, we have that mentality of you have to, you can't, you, there's no free ride. You have to start, you know, right. And you have to understand how the business works. If you want to get into the business, yeah, you, don't just, some, you don't just get handed the keys to the executive office. No. As soon as you walk up, not at all. Yeah, here's some, not at all. my Royal Prince yeah. of a son, you know? Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and that goes the same to like, I mentioned Mia, who's my, my niece who works directly for me and you know, who's Steven's daughter. And she's 20, 22, 23, and she's cutting her teeth on the road right now. And, you know, she's fallen in love with the business, but she, you know, like I said, she tours. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what she does and that's what she loves to do. So we started, you know, we started that something we've always instilled is that you have to learn the business from the bottom. You have to be at the front of the line to understand it. If you want to really invest your time. But it in, wasn't in just like a known thing that you and your brother, you know, no matter what, you've got to take this business over or whatever. Like you had options. In other words, it wasn't like a family business that you absolutely had to step into or was it? No, it wasn't. Cause no, it wasn't. Steven, when I I remember being young and talking to him, he was very, very, um, he was very open that if this isn't something that you want to do, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it, it, we have that. And, you know, now we're in a period where there are, you know, um, we're talking about the fifth generation. There's, you know, in addition to Mia, there's, there's, you know, five other kids that were, you know, with, you know, Steven has two, uh, a, a daughter uh, and a son. And then I have three kids who are all under, you know, 10 and under, Yeah, and, you know, I don't, there's, we don't ever talk about who's going to do what or whatever. It's what they want. It's what they want to do. You yeah, know, in the end. Yeah. And, and, and it's Mia wasn't forced into going into the business. She just needed a job and she got one at the, in the shop and yeah. then she ended up falling in love with it. So what so. was, what was the first show that once you did start sort of full time on the company or you decided this was going to be my business, what's the first show you remember being directly involved in? You know, so Fast forward a little bit and I don't even remember what year it was. I think it was 2001. Steven had come to me and I, I, I was 21, 20, 21 at the time. And he'd said to me, um, so I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy a, I'm buying a fireworks company in new Orleans. I said, Oh, that sounds cool. 
And he's like, well, do you want to move there? And I said, sure. And, um, very scary. You know, I, I was 21. Yeah. I was like, and it was, had a, you know, come from a small town. Like you mentioned the Sopranos earlier, like that yeah. little town is kind of like where I grew up in a town like that. Yeah. Everyone knows each other and small community. And he's like, do you want to move to new Orleans? I said, yes, I will. I'll do that. And, um, I moved to new Orleans and, um, I really got my teeth into show design, fireworks show design. And, um, you know, we have some people, guys still works for us who Bob and I work tightly with a guy named Michael, um, who, who mentored me during that time and taught me how to do show design. And I remember that the, the show that I remember specifically was, is that I used to shoot a Friday night baseball game fireworks display for the baseball team in new Orleans called the new Orleans Zephyrs. Okay. And I used to go to that show every week. And that was that I did that show for probably eight straight years. I was there every Friday or every Friday home game they had a show and that's kind of where I feel like in that field is where I kind of figured out the business was, was there. And, and I spent, you know, Bob will, it was when he gets into his history, Bob, you spent what your twenties essentially touring, right? Yeah. I started in a warehouse shop tech at six bucks plus an hour. And, uh, for, we were coming up, it was pre-millennium, big Y2K moment. And yeah. you, know, you couldn't build enough confetti cannons quick enough right. for everyone's 1999 New Year's to 2000 party. And I spent two years with a company called Pyrotech. And at that time, it was uh, Doug Adams was the owner of it. And uh, he was also partnered. Our neighbor was Howard Ungerleiter yeah. um, next door and got to have two great mentors. But I literally sat on a... Uh, sat at a workbench with a vice and just kept assembling confetti cannons and soldering cable for about two years. Yeah. Know, from 98 through leading up to new year's Eve. And you know, that's really where I started. And then I started getting some show opportunities. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the journey went on. Yeah. Bob and I are similar and very close in age and our trajectories were very similar in the sense that we started in warehouses and then, you know, he spent time touring and my touring was essentially in my twenties. I was on fireworks sites. I did fireworks shows all over the place and, and I designed a lot of fireworks shows. Um, and that's kind of where I spent my twenties. Interesting. So <clears throat> you said there's four total family members involved right now. Yeah. So it's you, Steven, Steven's daughter. And our sister, Lynn. Okay. And who is older than us, has worked at the place longer than us, and tells us about it frequently. <laughs> well, the way we used yeah. to do this. Yeah. And what, what's her position in the company? She works, she's worked in our accounting department forever. You know, yeah. she's been there. Yeah. So she worked for she's my the father. Yeah. She, she is the pit bull of the family. Good. Yes. Good. Yeah, well, that's, that's what's so fun. That's what's so funny, but great about the dynamic we have is, is like, you know, Bob is our COO and, you know, uh, uh, we have what Bob, six of us, we have an executive team of six of us and yeah. there's two, two Vitals on it and four aren't. And we, Steven considers everybody a family member and, you know, we're, we're doing this all together. It doesn't really matter that it's a family business, but when you have to face my sister, Lynn, yeah, that gets tough. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> like getting called into the principal's office. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. So Bob, Bob, pretend Rocco's not here for a minute 
it's tough, right? Working in a family business like that. Because I actually came up in a family business. I, I worked for the Martin distributor called Trackaman uh, starting in 1991. And at the time, I think I was the only, maybe there was one or two others that were non-family members in the entire company. I think there were only like 10 employees and seven of them were family members or whatever, right? And uh, so... You know, and by the way, they also spoke f- French as their primary language. So mm. I'd be in meetings with them where all of a sudden they'd go off and start talking French in the middle of a meeting. And I'm like, guys, I'm sitting right here. You know, I'm sitting right here. I don't understand a word you're saying. And then I started to learn a little bit of French. So I knew when they were talking about me and stuff. But it, do you find it challenging at all without, you know, you know, getting fired for saying something stupid, but do you, do you find it challenging being part of a family business and being on a, an executive board where you're a non-family executive member? It was certainly, uh, you know, the, the observation time, you know, yeah. You know, spend, you know, joining a new company, there's always that, you know, kind of feeling out the perimeter, yeah. checking yeah. out your environment. It's a little longer than what I, uh, what I would have expected. Yeah. Um, you know, where, where I, where it really started to transition for me is, you know, the, the friendships that be, that started to grow between Stephen and I and Rocco and Lynn. And suddenly I'm over at, you know, Rocco's mother's house for Sunday dinners. That's cool. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah I, I was just, I was really well, I was welcomed so well, but yeah. You know, Lynn, you know, family or no family, you know, whether it's Rocco or myself, Lynn will definitely tell you yeah. when, when you need to correct something. Yeah. And, uh, good. You know, I'm, I, I have companies where I don't have a Lynn and believe me, you know, it's anytime I've had a weakness in a company, it's been because I'm a very creative, very entrepreneurial founder type, you know, I'm always the visionary of the company. And a visionary always needs a really strong sort of, you know, feet on the ground executor, you know, not to execute people, but to execute on ideas and to make sure Mm. that things get done and that it's profitable and all of those types of things. Mm. Accountability. Founders like myself that are creative and, and that are visionary don't tend to think of what things cost and, you know, what could happen if, and, you know, we go forward, period. We're not looking behind us or anything. We're just going mm-hmm. forward. And so I think it's a really great thing that you have a Lynn, even though, you know, I understand the challenges that that could bring, but it's, it's pretty cool. Like you said, they, they obviously embraced you. And, you know, as I said to you, I had a, <clears throat> a similar experience where, Um, You know, I was part of a company that I was an outsider because I was sort of the only or one of very few non-family members, but the family really accepted me. And I remember one time the wife came to me and said, you know, my husband does not invite very many people to go to the tennis matches with him (laughs) because I was getting his box seats at the tennis uh, tournaments here and at the hockey games and whatever, right? I was like his buddy. He was always inviting me to these events and games and stuff. And we're still friends today, oddly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely comes with its challenges. So, Rocco, is it still pretty much a family business today? Like it's not owned by private equity or anything like that? Or, or is it? No, it's not. It, it, it is not. It, it's, a, it's a private company. Yeah. Um, 
today. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that like, uh, you know, I, I think for me, it's like how we, uh, like my association towards all of it has always been like, you know, that, um, you know, it, it's, it, I've always looked at fireworks displays and, and now we're into the special effects world we have been for, for quite some time now. And I've always looked at it differently. It's always been like the way we've survived and the way we've, 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 you know, the, the fam, our family has, has lived essentially, but you know, where we're at today is like, you know, with the culture that Steven's created for us, it's never really about that. It's, it's the legacies there, but it's, it's not my legacy or, the Vital legacy. It's right. all of our legacies. Right. It's, it's Bob's legacy, our CFO's Mark. It's his legacy. And, you know, we really march to it with at least, I mean, I do is that mindset. And, you know, I, I, you know, it's, I believe that we have Steven and myself and, and, and we respect everybody's roles and, and we, and we, we, we want the same outcome as everybody else wants. And it's very important for us that, um, it's all, it's all of our thing, not yeah. just, yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I don't go about it that, that yeah. the way. Look well, like that. you know, when I say family business, I don't mean it in a, in a sort of small family business kind of way, because you could call my business a family business. I have two sisters that work for me in a company with 20 people, but, um, but you're a company of almost a thousand people, I think, right? And well, I, I, it, it, what you've what you're talking about has been one of our, I would say, and Bob, you you jump in, you probably agree with me. Has been one of our challenges that we've experienced over the years. Has yeah. been the, you know, we made the decision, you know, x amount of years ago, where Stephen made the decision. He was like, look, he's like, we could either just stay where we're at and get and be the company that we are and do what we're doing. And we can do that. Or I want to be like, he's like you entrepreneur visionary. He's like, yeah. I want to be here. So to get from here to here, we have to really focus hard on putting in systems process, all that. And the company has been working that life. Uh, we've been working on our business as much as we work you know, on our customers or, yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, we work yeah, on our business quite a bit over the last, you know, seven to eight years. And I think that's been one of our cultural challenges has been, well, it, this is, it doesn't feel like this little family business anymore. We yeah. have a hundred people time people now. Yeah. And it, 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 it's been a challenge. It's been a lot of great from that, but it's also been a challenge as well. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. It's, it, you know, you want to stay small enough to, to feel good and to, you know, to still maintain that family thing and everything else, but you also want to grow into a bigger company and right. you have to adopt, uh, you know, bigger company mentalities and philosophies and tools and processes and all of those things that all other big companies have to do. So no, I, I completely get what you're saying. And, uh, and you know, but it's, it's interesting because when you, not many companies in our industry with little air quotes, um, can say that we're 130 years old or whatever. You know, yeah. there just aren't that many companies that are 130 years old in our industry. I, you know, in fact, I can't think of any other than yours. So, um, so you know, you have all that history and heritage and you want to play 
the good side of that. You want to pull the good side yeah. forward, but you also need to operate like a functioning, profitable company using today's right. tools and processes and everything else. So, you know, I completely get it. And it's, it's not a, not an insurmountable challenge at all, but it's still something that's challenging because still when you walk into a room, people are going to go like if some, if there's new staff members in a meeting or whatever, and you walk in, they're going to go, Oh, he's part of the family. You know, it's right. Yeah. We got to treat him differently than we do anybody else or whatever. Right. Even though, you know, that's not the case. You're just the VP of touring sales or whatever. I forget what your exact title is, but, uh, But yeah, so I get it. That's really interesting. So Bob, you started kind of on how you got, got into it and how you got going. And were, you were at Pyrotech for, for quite some time, right? Or yeah, for, for 20 years, I wow. was there. Um, you know, and just a little history when, you know, what part of the gel that I've always enjoyed with the two companies I've worked for is, um, you know, I grew up in a family business that my family was either florists or law enforcement in Toronto. And, my grandfather was a uh, district chief of police up in Toronto and, you know, and my father was a florist. He was the first black sheep to like break out and like follow my grandmother's pathway of flower shops in Toronto. And, Interesting. Uh, and you know, as, as a Canadian, as a young kid playing hockey, it wasn't so cool that your dad sponsored the team when now you got flowers all over your jerseys and uh, you, know, you, got, <laughs> you got someone else with like a Mack truck company on the next yeah, team. But, yeah. but uh, you know, so I, you know, Grew up in a uh, family business from like the age of four. I was sweeping a floor and, uh, you know, weekends I mopped the floors. And by the time I was 16, I was delivering flowers. And uh, and then I was on this path into law enforcement. And uh, it was just after high school. And I, uh, you know, I just remember sitting with my mom and like, I don't think this is for me. I just yeah. wasn't something I was into. And The flowers or the law enforcement? The law enforcement. Oh, okay. Um, I was never really into the flowers, but, right. uh, and so she's like, well, you know, you need to, uh, if you want to stay in the house, you're going to school. I said, okay. And I, uh, had been accepted for a culinary program because I have always enjoyed cooking and I was accepted in a theater program just cause I was always involved primarily from a carpentry side, uh, in high school theater and, you know, silly me, I chose th- theater at the time because i'm like oh culinary those are long hours restaurant dinner cleanup because yeah. in high yeah, school this is theater, much easier yeah high, high school theater you know you're done by 4 15 right you know, not thinking what real entertainment was and that it's you know thursday through sunday and it's early mornings and long nights until the trucks yeah, not so much yeah so i you know after coming out of college i had the opportunity to uh join a gentleman by the name of Tristan Ford, who was in my college program. He introduced me to the owners of Pyrotech and I got a job there and I uh, had a great opportunity, as I said, with Doug Adams and they brought me in. It was a, it was, it was a family type environment, uh, you know, Doug and his father and uh, Doug's partner, but it was like a bunch of brothers. You know, we, we worked hard all week and when we didn't have a show on a weekend, because Pyrotech was still much smaller back then in the mid nineties where we actually had weekends to ourselves. We, we go fishing or we go out and hang out as the guys. And, uh, yeah, I was very welcome there. And then I had an opportunity to, uh, Pyrotech got the Celine Dion residency in Las Vegas, which was around like 2002. And, uh, I remember Doug saying to me, do you want to go run a shop in Vegas? Very similar to rock Orleans. You know, when I was young and 
looking to grow my career and I jumped at it and uh, we got down there, we bought a building and uh, about three weeks into production load in the entire production team, the effects, uh, everyone got replaced on that Celine show. And uh, you know, effects were cut. Never really got the full story. Just a lot of, a lot of faces changed and we were told effects were canceled. And uh, so now I've moved down there. We got this office and part of the contract was you had to have a supporting office. And uh, you know, it, suddenly I started not, you know, I'd really always been more mechanically inclined and, you know, an operations, like hands-on operations base. And I started working on generating revenue to keep this business that I've now moved down for. And uh, I had a really great opportunity that I started getting involved with award shows. And that was really, you know, that was really where my, uh, where I really stuck to and where my main passion was around was always been in special effects for award shows. Right. And then I do a lot of, you know, I start going out and starting tours and getting them off the ground and make sure that, you know, what was designed and sold was actually set up and delivered to the client. And I, uh, you know, I worked with, you know, Pyrotech for 20 years and I transitioned from, you know, from the warehouse to the, Vegas facility manager and finally spent my last four years as their COO. Wow. Uh, That's cool. Really, and you never, you never once thought, Hey, I, I should probably go explore lighting or, you know, with Howard go into lasers or whatever it was. It was always just pyro for you. huh? I had always, uh, you know, I happened to come into the industry in the, you know, I, my father's a, you know, for a florist, also a big, uh, backyard car junkie. Right. And, uh, Grew up always working on cars, and you know, in the late eight, late nineties, uh, touring flame effects were just kind of becoming something. And yeah. that was really one of the marquees that Pyrotech had was the, their name. They called it the Dragon, and it was one. Yeah, you know, some of their first shows, you know, out there was one of the first companies with touring flame effects. And I had this background in auto, in you know, auto mechanics of growing up around cars, and suddenly the you know we start talking about fuel ignition air mixture and how to control it and you know between my theater background and understanding dmx and being able to create some small circuit boards with non-dim relays and we just started building these flame effects and uh yeah i just found what i love doing was yeah making fire speaking of those flame effects i'm gonna ask you a really stupid question so um i think the first time i saw it done really well was this particular effect anyways, which is, is colored flames and the ability mm-hmm. to change the color of all the different flames, you know, at different times or whatever. And um, I remember it was Motley Crue and it was the one where they had the circus looking thing. Like it actually yeah. looked like a, a circus set. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the flames, you know, would go from blue to orange to red to yellow to whatever, right? Yeah. So how are you doing that? Is that just different gas mixes? So it's actually a, a liquid uh, that we're using, like a isopropyl alcohol. Okay. And it has a, a powder mixture mixed and suspended in that liquid. So it's, okay. it's being forced, being pushed out through uh, a venturi, which yeah. is essentially a, a vent through air pressure creates a suction draw and propels the liquid. And as it propels, it goes past the pilot light and that ignites it Interesting. at the source. Interesting. And, and uh, so... Is is the bigger fear that the flame is going to burn something, or that that pilot light doesn't work and you're spewing fuel on people? That you're spewing fuel on people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. 
you know, based on how you set your pressures and your, you know, there's, you know, in certain physics, the flame, certain flames can only get so high. Right. Right. Um, so as long as you're conscious and aware of what your trim is that day going into the venue, you control your, your risk. It's more the concern that the pilot doesn't light the liquid spews out lands all over the stage. Yeah. On the artist and the, the shooter yeah, or the artist, <laughs> yeah. the, the shooter doesn't see that. And they, uh, you know, or doesn't, or it's coming right up to a pyro cue and you hit a pyro cue and a bunch of sparks then land on the, yeah, the deck wow, and, uh, wow. suddenly you got a floor fire. So, I mean, it's so rare that you see follow spot operators getting barbecued, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it, it has to be safe. I mean, that's right. So that's right. have either of you guys, you know, I hate to go to the dark side here, but have either of you been involved in any sort of nasty accidents? I, sir, I, I've had a few. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah, rare though, right? It is rare. Absolutely, it's rare. I've had uh, generally they come in my experience. They've come down to human error. Yeah, or uh, you know, I was you know as a uh, as a young teenage boy, I uh, got into a a fist fight at my high school once, and I remember and you know fighting in the cafeteria, and I threw a punch, and the guy missed, and I hit one of those uh, fire glass door frames oh, uh, yeah. that has the wire mesh in it oh. and, you know, split my knuckle open and, you know, back, you know, I'd be arrested today for doing that. Back, yeah. back then I had to pay $42 uh. for a new piece of glass <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I had to help the school the maintenance guy install the window and uh, wow. he gave me a good lesson. He said, the day you stop respecting the glass is the day you'll get burnt, you'll, the day you'll get cut. Yeah. And I tried to carry that forward in my career and the one time I uh, injured myself, I really, uh, it was the day I stopped respecting it. And that's always been a good memory. I, uh, yeah. I was trying to cut a corner and static got the best of me. You know, I normally, when we go in a lot of these pyro rooms that our crews go into or that we used to go into when we were out on shows, a lot of them are carpeted. And so normally we'd go grab some plywood off the attic of a truck and put some plywood down. So we're not standing on carpet. Right. And, uh, the show I was on, I only had nine pieces of product. I'm like, I don't need to go home. No Three big sheets big. of plywood, nine pieces of product. And I remember splitting the match apart and I, and the effect was sitting in the palm of my hand and I saw the arc between I, the uh, two wires. And, uh, when, when extreme heat hits the hand, it's natural reaction is it clinched to shut. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't even like throw the thing. It was just, it happened so quick and, you know, cored out a bottom part of the palm of my hand. And, uh, that was yeah. very fortunate. No wow. major scars, no real injury. Well, I'll tell you, people. I'll tell you my big pyro accident that I had was in high school. I think I was probably in eighth or ninth. No, I was probably in 10th grade to high school, beginning of high school. No, I think I was in ninth. Anyways, whenever it was, I was young and somebody had thrown a, a firecracker and you know it fizzled out on the ground it didn't it didn't pop and so i picked it up and i'm looking at it and then all of a sudden i see a little smoke coming out out of it and so for whatever reason my reaction instead of just going like that my reaction was to close my hand and then it went bang and you know it was like this far from my face and i just remember my ears ringing for the rest of the day and my hand was so numb, like I couldn't have shaken anyone's hand or anything. And, you know, I always had a healthy respect for, for fireworks. And then, you know, in, in bands, so our big 
fireworks display or, or pyro display in, in my first uh, band that actually played real gigs was we had these things that were basically like empty junction boxes with some wires going into it. And then there was a, there was a high beam switch out of a yep. like 70s car that, you know, click would uh, ignite the pyro usually. Yep. usually. <laughs> you know, sometimes it was yes. like, you know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, had about a 60% hit rate on that, right? And sometimes yeah. there was a bit of a delay, and so it wasn't highly accurate. But, you know, you read, and I see, I see YouTube videos and stuff, or I, I've heard about or whatever. Like, uh, wasn't it uh, James Heffield from uh, Metallica got burned pretty good once, I think? Yeah, back in, Mon- and, you know, back in Montreal, it happened, and their next show coming through, they, uh, that's how Pyrotech got Molly Crew was the result of after that operator being like, or sorry, that's how Pyrotech got Metallica. Oh, was the result of that that technician Interesting. unfortunate incident, and they uh, they were still on tour through Canada. And they called around, and you know, back then we were doing Phantom of the Opera and some theater stuff. All of a sudden, you're doing Metallica. Wow, All of a yeah. doing Metallica. That's and, cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the you know I'm sure you've experienced with your companies. You know, you you start small, and suddenly you, momentum starts coming. You start yeah. growing. Oh, faster, well, and it's usually an event like that that you had no control over. I mean, it just fell in your lap and you go, holy shit, we better follow this success, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. I have a, a story related to Pyro and Metallica. So um, when I was with Martin, and again, you guys may be too young, I don't know, but it was LDI 1997, I think, was when we just spent the farm on LDI and we not only did a, an amazing booth with performers and all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the booth, but we did a party on the beach, Miami beach. Hmm. And we brought in a company at the time from, uh, so what I did is I went out through LDI, the magazine, and I said, Hey, I'd like to get a pyro company involved as a sponsor for this party. And so, you know, they're going to have to pay some money towards the sponsorship to be a sponsor of the party. But then they're also going to um, have to do a fireworks display. And so I can't remember the name of the company, sadly, but it was a company out of Buffalo, New York. And the guy's name was Kevin, as I recall. And um, so anyways, they did this unreal, you know, synced up pyro show at the end of, uh, you know, the last song. It was Casey and the Sunshine Band, believe it or not. Oh, nice. And, uh, And so after it, John Broderick from Metallica came up to me and said, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and we use a lot of pyro. He said, I need to know who that company was because that was the best pyro display I've ever seen. I mean, these guys just blew their, blew it all. Went for it. They went for it. You know, the sky literally was the limit on their budget, I guess. But, you know, I felt bad after the fact that they actually paid me 20 grand to be a part of our party. But at the same time, I mean, they definitely got access to Metallica. I don't know if they did a Metallica tour after that, but they got access to all of these incredible things. Whether or not they actually got them, that was up to their sales staff or their abilities, yeah. right? But, but yeah, that was uh, – and John Broderick's a great guy. I don't know how well you got to know him when you were, when you were at uh, Pyrotech, but really, really good dude. So, um, so, Bob, you're the COO. Does that involve – like operations as far as the physical locations and stuff? Do you oversee sort of the operations from that standpoint? 
Yeah, so I oversee our 13 facilities right. across the U.S. Um, so how's that right now? Like a, how many of those 13 facilities are you allowed to have people in? How many do you actually have people in? Um, so right now we have, off the top of my head, you know, there's there's four that are um, have reg, have staff regularly in them. Um, you know, from a ATF compliance standpoint, we're required to check on the facility in our magazines on, right. uh, a couple times a week yeah. just to make sure no theft uh, from the explosives. Right. But uh, so primarily, we've been working on you know building up gears uh, in top shape and repairs, and you know, we really took the opportunity over the last eight weeks to really focus on our innovation and our R and D and so innovation, it's very good point you make because it's one of my, my big questions or misunderstandings or whatever, as it relates to, to the pyro business. So, I mean, most people would think you've seen one fireworks show, you've seen them all. And I, I remember reading, uh, somewhere that you've got a, uh, I don't know if it's a tagline or a company mission statement or whatever, but it's to create oohs and ahs. I think I read somewhere, which I love. That's our by purpose. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Purpose. I love that. I love that line. I mean, it's obviously, you know, ooh, ah, that's what everybody <laughs> does when they stand and walk, watch a fireworks show. But um, when you're innovating, what are you doing? Like, is it a different mix to create a different effect or a new color or a new mix of colors? Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of innovation on safety features so we can get rid of some of those human error types of things. And, you know, there's added checks and balances uh, using electronics or whatever. But what kind of innovations are we looking at? So we really, I mean, we define it as through innovation for our audiences and internal innovation is our two categories in the company. You know, internal innovation is continued safety and processes and, you know, working with our, you know, our safety charter and our team that we have to make sure that we're continuing, continuing to, you know, make sure that we, keep our checks and balances, whether it's, uh, uh, retraining certification as well as just, you know, our, our guidelines and our, you know, we believe that, uh, a good plan going into a show will and making sure the communication is clear will result in a well-executed show. Yeah. You know, making sure everyone's aware. And then when we get to the audience side of innovation, you know, fortunately with the company having, you know, two different, branches so to say with its uh with the fireworks side as well as the live events that Rocco heads up and runs you know we work with our chemists and our manufacturers over in China you know generally we take about three three trips a year there to you know first to see what's new uh see what they've been working on in person versus video and we're looking at, you know, whether it's different patterns or, you know, Rocco can certainly explain a lot deeper in some of the fireworks that you have, you know, whether it's different chemical composites and how things strobe or sparkle or, you know, some of the, the ghost shells where it breaks and you see parts break. And then all of a sudden, you know, those orbs have flown 300 more feet and they're right in your face and then they light and it's like vibrant yeah. red right in front of you. And can I, um, can I ask you a question along those lines? So Rocco, yeah. when you're designing a show, do you yeah. actually have like some kind of a visualization software when you mix this and this, that it shows you what result you're going to get, or is it always down to trying it with actual product? So, you know, what we grew up with essentially is the, you know, from a, 
from a design software standpoint, when we were, whether we were doing a show, you know, fireworks display for a baseball team or municipality or, or doing a tour, um, you know, presentation or some festival presentation, um, you know, it was basically all done with, um, it was data entry. So you had to know the product. I always chunked it down two ways. If you know the effect and you know color, you can make it all come together. Um, you were basically working everything off of uh, what you thought it was going to look like and, and so forth. As time has progressed, there's been some you know innovations in the marketplace where there's, there's some really good softwares out there right now that offer more of a previs look at it so you can – you can see what you're doing, and, and that really that's really helpful. You know, it's important that you know you don't get into stepping all over yourself with product, and you want to make sure that you have good durations in between things, and, and so forth. So the technology's come a long way. Um, you know, as far as show design goes, you know, on our on our fireworks side, there's there's with three show designers on that side. And then on our special effects side, we have there's there's two of us, and, and and the biggest thing that I've you know the trait that I've seen everybody have in that in, who does that is they're kind of like nerds, and we're all nerds. We watch videos of fireworks displays. Uh, a guy who works for us who who designs special effects, like he knows every manufacturer's like product like listings to to the T. And he just studies hard. And, 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 and so when that tour comes up or that festival comes up and the, the designer or the production manager says, you know, this is what the artist is looking for. And this is what we think, you know, right. he knows and we know what to apply to that show to, to make it. So dynamic. are you basically at the mercy of, of manufacturers? Like you're not designing an effect. You're, you're combining effects to make a show. Is that I, accurate? I mean, I would say that like you have your baseline of, effects you know there's yeah. comets mines gerbs and you have this baseline but we do work hand in hand with the, the manufacturer of these effects to customize them and give our input into maybe combining two of them or doing them in this color combination to make them that much more dynamic so right. it's it's good that um it's 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 great that we have that capability to, to the, the, the manufacturers are so open and, and great idea people. What, what's interesting between the two businesses is, is like the, the manufacturing front from our fireworks side is majority of our fireworks are, you know, purchased in from China and we have a, a great relationship with um, a, a gentleman in Spain who's, who happens to be Disney's biggest fireworks supplier. So we buy product from him as well. And he's an amazing guy and we have really good, creative relationship with him and he'll build us, you know, anything that we can think of. We're on the flip side and when it comes to staging shows and, and, and touring and festivals, and it's awesome is that those manufacturers are all here in the United States, which is great. Right. So, um, so when, even, when you're de designing a show though, like a, a, a client comes to you, let's say I'm doing a God forbid 4th of July celebration and um, I give you a budget. So I give you a number. I've got a hundred thousand dollars. Do you, do you already basically know what you can do for $100,000 or do you go work it backwards and say on a $100,000 show, we can afford 20000 in product, uh, this much of this, this much of this, that's how that's going to work. On a $200,000 show, it'd be 40000 in product. I mean, is it 
sort of along those yeah, lines? I mean, basically, yeah. When you get a but, you know, when you're given that hundred thousand dollar budget, we put a you know, we cost it accordingly. Yeah. There's a product allocation towards it. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it's, it's different in the sense if that, if that, if you want to spend that hundred thousand dollars and do a five minute show versus a 20 minute show, there's a big difference there. And, right. and cause you're going to spend the same amount of money in product in a different time period. So right. it's just, you get into that. So, um, and then you also run into, you know, what we're, we're fortunate what we're seeing a lot in, in your neck of the woods in Florida is that, you know, uh, our July 4th shows down there are um, you're seeing some communities who are traditionally used to doing shows like out on barges on the water. Right. They're not doing that this year and they're looking to do multiple sites within the city oh, to have better visibility for, for the community. Right. So. That's interesting. So, yeah. you know, one of the most curious things to me, and we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, is I am shocked. Again, I'm Canadian and, and relatively conservative when it comes to the idea of guns. And, and you know, I'm technically I vote Republican, but I'm, I've never been a gun guy. I don't own any guns. I don't, you know, think I want to take away anybody's rights to own guns or anything, but I've never been a gun guy. And I think explosives are best in the hands of people who understand how to use those explosives like you guys safely. Um, So I am shocked. Like I remember even to this day, you know, and I've been here now 30 years, I'm still shocked every time we get near a 4th of July or, or Memorial day or new year's or all those events um, that I can go to a roadside stand and yeah. spend a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks and get this outrageous backyard or or cul-de-sac fireworks show, and and I mean like these finale boxes that you pay a hundred bucks or seventy five or fifty or whatever it is, and then you get them two for one if you get there at the right time, and right. You, can, you can do them down a little bit on that price too. You know, I mean it's it's unbelievable the stuff that you can buy at a roadside thing, and I'm a pretty smart guy. But I'm still a little bit nervous of these things. Like, you know, my son's 16 now. So, yeah, I'll let him light him as long as he's smart enough to get out of the way. But right. when my son was 11 or 12, he always wanted to be the guy who took the, the Bic lighter up and lit the fuse. And I was like, no, you sit way back over there, you know, because I don't trust <laughs> right. these things. So, you know, when does that end? Like, you know, the regulations don't appear to be too tight. I mean, if you were to ask a consumer manufacturer, they'd probably feel the regulations are tight because they'd like to build even bigger finale boxes. Yeah, but, I don't uh, know about that, man. <laughs> but I mean, there is, you know, the you know, you've got some states that are they consider the safe and sane type that are non-projectiles, more like more like fountain type effects, and like the burning schoolhouse. The yeah, if you remember the the cone shaped one that you'd light the top and it just yeah. spew out sparks. See, and that stuff's all really boring. So, I mean, I really like the stuff. Like, I like the show that all this stuff does. I just still, like, I find it hard to believe that they let me walk away from a roadside stand with a shopping cart full of explosives that can go, you know, 100 feet in the air or whatever. I'm shocked by this. Not 250 feet. Or 250 feet, feet, whatever it is, (laughs) you know, far, way up there, you know. Right. It blows me away. And we have a friend who uh, is in the consumer fireworks business and they have a store down in uh, uh, like Hollywood beach area. Oh. I, uh, 
uh, Hollywood Beach, Florida. Yeah. So I'm, I spent a lot of time down in Hallandale. Yeah. And so they, uh, so I was talking to him. It was day before New Year's Eve. And I'm down there with my kids and we're like, ah, what are we going to do for New Year's Eve? Small children, you know, put them to bed, fall asleep by 10, watching Matlock. You know? Yeah. <laughs> An exciting evening as a couple. And uh, he's like, why don't you come by the store? He's like, pick some stuff out. Just take it with you. And I had like, this was like a Costco of fireworks, this store. Yeah. And, Phantom uh, fireworks I, or something like that. Uh, TNT. Oh, okay. I know it. Yeah. And I was blown away with some of the stuff that I could, you know, I haven't bought consumer fireworks. I generally try not to work Canada day and enjoy with my family. And you know, we set them up on the beach and it was impressive. I mean, we had families all over the place lined up on the beach watching. It, um, it's shocking were, that stuff. So, I mean, but again, like, uh, so do you guys think that's safe? I think it's, uh, you know, if you were to ask my opinion, I would say I think it's very, I'd have the same respect or mindset to it around firearms that it's safe in the hands that have been trained how to use them. But you and don't have to know, take any training. To, no, to, you, don't have, you don't have to in some states to buy a rifle either. You know, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I think, it, you know, it goes, I think if you're, you know, if you're going to be responsible with your family, it's important to read the instructions. Yeah. You know, when they say don't put them closer than 75 feet to your family, you probably could probably air with a little grace and go with 85, 100 feet. But the weird side of me always loves to read the news headlines on July 5th, you know, to oh. to just read about, you know, little Johnny losing his hand or this person, oh. you know, burned his face off or, you yeah. know, I mean, I know I make that sound like it's a funny thing. It's not. But, you know, you always see it coming because well, it's how, just too easy. It's too easy the, to screw up. How about the teenager you always hear about that thought he could impress his friends by shooting a bottle rocket out of the crack of his ass? Yeah, those are always <laughs> funny. I love those videos. Oh. Those are my oh, favorite videos. And you just, you look, you're like, God. Yeah. He just yeah. burned his nuts. He did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now those, yeah. those are my favorite, uh, favorite YouTube videos. Those ones. So, you know, but when did this business move to China? Like when did all the manufacturing move to China? And, and, you know, didn't probably it- what you saw is that, you know, right around the bice. So the way our business functioned back in the fifties and sixties and part of the seventies was, is, is that it was mostly a mail order business where, we would send a catalog out to your local fire departments and the fire department would put an order in. I'll take two of these, six of these, five of these, and you deliver the product to them or they'd come pick it up and they would execute the display essentially. And what happened was like right around the, when the bicentennial in the, in the country hit, it was a big demand spike. And what, what started happening was, um, you know, your communities would say, can you guys just come do this for us as opposed to having our people do it? It would really shift it from a product sale to a service is, yeah, is, is right, where that, that right. morph happened. And right around that time, you know, in the eighties, you start, we start manufacturing around like 86 or 88, somewhere in that range. It, it became too expensive. And, and, and it, cause you started to see influxes of product coming in from, from, from other countries, initially South America. And then you saw, you know, the, the, the Chinese really starting to get good at, at exporting product and having good quality controls and so forth. So I would say when you're, 
in the right in the eighties is that's when we stopped doing yeah. it, and then it kind of shifted right into the nineties where it was. I'm guessing the actual edge. manufacturing process is not very sexy. You're basically just mixing different gunpowders and things and putting it into a tube of some sort or whatever. I mean, it's not very sexy. Uh, and it's, you know, there's a high risk to it when you start, right. um, like all those stars that you see flying in the air at a fireworks show, you know, all those were a loose powder that was pressed under a hydraulic press to create that shape or that, that you know, essentially make like a little, little piece of coal, a little piece of uh, like a little rock right. to go into that firework. And you started seeing um, regulations, OSHA, you know, EPA requirements in manufacturing in the U S as well as the risk factor, you know, people started, you know, starting to innovate as opposed right. to hand presses going to machinery. Right. You know, suddenly you're using a piece of metal on some explosive powder, pressing something and you get a spark and yeah. you start seeing yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. injury. No, I, I get that. So, you know, another really stupid question. I like to warn you before I ask them. Um, so when I see a firework go up and make like that nice flare and then it changes into something else, is that just like, are you actually just covering uh, powders or whatever and then they have different burn rates and they're scheduled to burn at very specific times or how does that work? I don't, you're on mute, Mark. I almost think, you know, if you look at the inside of some of the, more display or custom design fireworks. I almost think of them. They're like a pomegranate or like a, you know, like the never ending gobstopper. It's layers of effects. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's essentially if you, if you have something that's like, that turns from like red to blue, the outer is all red and then it just consumes itself. And then it burns the, it goes, the burns off the red powder. Then it burns the blue powder essentially off. I get it. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. So yep. how about uh, somewhere around 10 years ago, I guess, you guys expanded the business and got into to special effects and lasers. And um, what was the thinking there? Was it just that, you know, our clients are using these things on the shows in addition and we just want to control the whole show? Or how did that all well, go I, I, You know, St- Stephen has this entrepreneurial he's kind of three four steps ahead of us all the time thinking wise and you know where we were at really was this you know and he he is his story hasn't changed very much in the last he has a vision of where he sees the company being Uh, uh, and and he knew that to get the company to to where he wants it to be that we were not going to be able to do that just by being a fireworks display company. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you couple that with, so basically we, he's like, I'm done buying firing systems and building equipment because it's a really, if you think about it, it's a really not a great return on investment. If you buy, if the make equipment for one show on the 4th of July, then it goes sits against some wall for 364 more days and then it gets reused next year. And that, it, it's, it's not a great return on investment. Hey, you're spending so all like, your money on storage. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah. So, um, and that's the first inflection point to go is a fireworks display company is build a, you can build the 4th of July business quickly. Um, because there's a lot of it out there, you know, 17,000 yeah. shows a- across the United States. Wow. Um, but 
so he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. So, you know, and plus you couple that with, we, we started getting client demand for it. You know, they were asking about it, you know, and we always, I think it was client Steven demand for this, what to own their own firing systems. No, no, to, to do lasers and confetti. So we, we always, now we termed ourselves as that point. We were a fireworks company who could do gerbs. That was the way we always, yeah, that's what we thought. You know, we were in a different category of businesses that, like, that Bob was at at that time where Bob was at Pyrotech, who was predominantly the touring business. And, um, you know, so at this point, you know, we had made the decision to, um, you know, make this transition or, and get into this and, and to diversify the business essentially. Right, right. So that was around nine years ago. And, you know, we had an opportunity where, um, a, uh, we got, we, we, we kind of joined forces with who was a client of ours at the time, um, who, who came onto the company who had laser experience. He, he actually works for Fireplay now. Okay. Um, and you know, that's what brought me to Dallas and, um, so I, I remember this vividly, you know, I was in Dallas, I was sitting in my office and we had gotten a phone call um, to do a fireworks display for a dance music event that was happening in downtown Dallas called Lights All Night. It was a big DJ show. And um, I'm like, yeah, sure, we could, we could do a fireworks display for you. Oh, by the way, who's doing your special effects for this show? And they didn't have anybody at the time. And I was like, okay, well, we can do them for you. We're local. And, you know, so that was like our inflection point. We did a three-day dance music show in Dallas called Lights All Night. And that turned into um, we started doing business with Disco Donnie, who's uh, – we still do business with them. Love those guys. You know, they, they're a big dance prom- dance music promoter. And I think what really tipped it for us was – that following August, I think it was August or September, we did the first Tomorrow World, which was in Atlanta, which was a huge, wow, massive yeah. EDM show. Yeah. We did all the stages at Tomorrow World. And that kind of propelled us into, we really got our roots into the the, the dance music scene. And then we started, we're, you know, we're one of Insomniac suppliers. We still are. Um, one of their vendors and we, we started getting into to more into that. And then, you know, Bob referenced that his, you know, how do you say it, Bob? Like you were like the award shows were like, a, uh, like how you, you always stayed relevant in reward shows where we had the same approach into festivals. So we started becoming suppliers at like Lollapalooza and Austin city limits where bands were playing and you just start getting touches with these people right, right. And, and it just kind of expand and the, the market was underserved and, and we, in, there, there was a new face and, and we just started growing it. And that's how it turned into what it is now, which is, you know, um, we still do a lot of sports, but uh, you know, a, a good lion's share of our business comes from, you know, award shows, you know, touring a lot more um, diversity. You know, so what, what percentage of your business today would you say is touring if, if that's not some sort of secret? If I'd have that percentage, but I could say that, you know, from a, from fireworks versus live events or like concert events. Yeah. We're at a 55, 45 split roughly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 55 so on the it's fireworks. almost, almost half your business now. 
Yeah. yeah. That's and that, that was that's what we wanted. Yeah. No, I, much more diversity. Well, and all, obviously, I would say that a lot of your so if we look at COVID now, for example, I'm guessing all of your touring is gone, just like everyone else's. But right. some of your special events and like, you know, how many of your Fourth of July shows have canceled? We are very grateful that, you know, we always consider like our fireworks, our legacy business, Stephen calls it. Right. And with COVID hitting, you know, it is the one thing that has, we've always, we, we've, we've been through situations where there's been recessions. The, the one I can think of is like in 2008. Yeah. What we always found is that communities to the best they can are very resilient in keeping their show because it's yeah. it's a part of the soul of a community to have a Fourth of July fireworks. Yeah, spread. I mean, even if you're dark and sad and depressed, a fireworks show brings everybody together. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we have been very fortunate that you know it's not what we're traditionally used to doing, like volume wise, but we have fireworks displays, and and that is something that that's kind of what we're all working on right now, along with you know, maintaining the R and D efforts that uh, Bob's talking about and, you know, still talking to all of our clients, but it's been, it's been mostly our fireworks displays that are, that are, you know, keeping us going. So most of your 4th of July shows are still on? No, I'd say 20%. Yeah. How many percent? 20% still happening. Oh, okay. So you've had an 80% cancellation on 4th of July. I would have thought 4th of July, more of them would have stayed on because you know, if I were a, a state leader or a mayor or, you know, any kind of a leader like that, um, even if you couldn't have mass gatherings, mm-hmm. I would love to have a fireworks display in downtown West Palm Beach, for example, and have people look out their windows and see it. Uh, I'm very happy to say that you are having one and we're producing yeah. it. Oh, good. Well, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to pay attention. <laughs> Um, been a, they've, was, West Palm has been a client of ours for a long time. We were also Sunfest fireworks provider for a long oh, time. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've seen both yeah. shows multiple times. Yeah. So, yeah, now that's, that's uh, yeah, I mean, obviously in our industry, everything's a bit of a pain in the in the butt right now. <laughs> you know, there's think, there's not a lot of stuff going on. I think for 4th of July, you're going to see more of the, the little Billy articles for consumer fireworks. I think you're going to see a lot of, a lot more people. Because the events don't exist out there, but the yeah. opportunity to go buy consumer fireworks does that, uh, unfortunately. So we'll have a lot more mistakes and problems and unfortunately, you know, mishaps and hurt people and stuff this year. That's not great. I think the one thing that we're seeing, though, is, is that, you know, a lot of communities and a lot of it, it's it's in our it's in the touring live entertainment world too. It's like almost like everyone's in this wait and see like, and so what we're having a lot of is like, you know, not outright cancellations where, you know, the word postponement is more commonly used. You you can't postpone 4th of July. It either happens no, or it doesn't, right? It either happens, but, especially when they postpone it to next year, and you're like, it, yeah. Right. "Yeah, it's a cancel." <laughs> you're getting, we're getting chatter of like people want to. We feel like Labor Day could be a good fireworks weekend for us, depending on how things go. I think the other thing is is that what we're seeing is, is that I don't have a percentage, but 
you are seeing communities who want to do a show. Uh, they don't have the, the tax revenue to do one yeah, either. So, you yeah, know, that's, they're, true they're, too. that's, that's, but I would think the- that every community, especially the one I live in, you know, is going to have billionaires that'll step up and say, you know, I'll put up the 250,000 for the fireworks show this year or whatever. Right. Yeah, I think we, uh, our municipalities are certainly those that have the, um, the ability, but, you know, through like, through their government reopen plans, yeah, are more engaged. You know, we've had clients that are, you know, a shopping mall that does a community show. And right. it's usually all the retail vendors contribute for, and they've yeah. come back and said, you know, we'd love to have the show, but, you know, unfortunately I don't feel right asking our, our tenants right now for money because they've been shut down. Yeah. You know, we've, we've taken some approaches of, you know, let's do a, uh, you know, would you like to see if, your tenants would like to partner with us and we'll do a drive-in show, right? which we've been seeing popular and popping up and charge so, it per car. And are you guys also preparing yourselves for those June calls where 4th of yeah. July is suddenly back on again? And Absolutely. So you're going to probably have some backup inventory of product and stuff prepared no. to... <laughs> Prepared to charge double for the Fourth of July show. Well, you, you 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 can't make this stuff up. It's like last year, like there's been a supply issue out of China with fireworks over the last probably six years. So it was really hard to get product out of you know. And lead times were like a year and a half. And oh Jesus! You know, so, so last year was like, do we have enough product to get through? Now it's like. We have all this product. Yeah. Yes. To answer your question, we, we hope the phone rings in June. Yeah. My feeling is that it's going to. I think yeah, if I the agree. next couple of weeks go like the last couple of weeks had, you know, I mean, there are still some people out there who want to put media out that says, oh, my God, you know, uh, cases are up now. Now that people are partying and getting together, cases are up. You don't know that, first of all, because it takes three weeks to know whether or not cases are up. You know, if it had anything to do with people getting together last week for Memorial Day or whatever, it's going to take a little longer than a couple days, you know. But um, I I think we're going to see a pretty positive next couple of weeks, and we're going to see a lot of towns and cities and whatever deciding, yeah, you know what, we had planned to cancel that event, let's put it back on again. I think we're going to see festival shows kind of popping back up again. So, you know, a lot of the summer tours and things, those are all gone already. But I think we're going to see some small festivals that are going to try and take their place and jump in and say, hey, okay, so you can't go see the Stones with 100,000 other people this year, but you can come see, you know, these four really great classic rock bands uh, in the stadium that there's only going to be 20,000 people in an Mm 80,000-seat venue. We'll so. do this when, when there, I don't know, Bob, is it Steven who shared this? If you look on YouTube, go look up Derek Sivers. He's a, he's a, a speaker about starting a movement and he has this video. It's a Ted talk that he did. And it's basically all it takes is one lone nut to basically start a movement. And uh, yeah, I think there's going to be some lone nuts out there who are going to start a movement and, and, and get things, get, get people back out there. Yeah, no, I, agree. I I completely agree with you on that. I, you know, somebody's going to do something. 
I, I mean, that's somebody's going to do something. It. Some somebody's going to do. You know, a lot of the top artists and a lot of the top companies have just kind of hunkered down and said, "Okay, we're not doing anything for the rest of this year." But that leaves a very, very, you know, vast number of people who still are going, hey, wait a second. What about this year? You know, I need to do something. So yeah. I think we're going to see something going on. I and, do agree with you on the, the festivals. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Festivals you know, just, the, just the logistics of laying out a tour and the routing schedules. Yeah, it, it's a little challenging. Don't, you don't just pull the trigger today and we're ready to go Friday. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but, it's a bit more challenging than that. Speaking of challenges, so outside of COVID, mm-hmm. are you guys seeing any new tighter regulations and things for your business? Like, are you constantly bombarded with now you got to do this, now you got to do this? And I would think, especially any time something is related to, you know, presidential or the government or whatever, like, I can't even imagine the background checks your guys have to go through. I mean, all, all of our, uh, our, Contractors and employees are all vetted through the ATF. Is that's the organization we use for our background checks. Okay. And uh, regulation-wise, we're seeing some new regulations and flame effects specifically coming out. It was supposed to come out for this year, which uh, through the NFPA, which is the the, the um, you know essentially the the authority over our industry. That uh, is a kind of a guideline for local fire marshals and state fire marshals, and right. you know, that see, you know, that was. I felt that that direction that the flame effects were going was in a positive direction. It, for sure, it, it did add some restrictions, but it it eliminated some pro, some products that are out in the market. You know, really, I'd really say probably I don't know, maybe two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. You really started seeing special effects companies go from making all their own flame effects in-house to a lot of off-the-shelf items. Yeah. And, uh, when that happened, you started getting lower price point off-the-shelf items, and they didn't necessarily live up to the side of the code they should have. And, you know, there's been a lot of great work that some industry leaders have been part of, and uh, some members in our safety team were part of those working groups. And they've really, you know, the goal was to, prevent those, those moments you see was it Tennessee was it the Tennessee Titans fire last year in the NFL yeah you know we've we've seen a number of you know whether it's nightclub fires or incidents that occur using yeah that one had to hurt the one in uh what was it Vermont or Maine or something with great white oh, oh that yeah that that, that was, was that was yeah. nasty I was down in New York for that and normally you get you know, one fire marshal comes out and it was two days after that event and the whole battalion came out. Oh, wow. It was like, it was like we were doing a show down there. And yeah. Like, we only have, well, that was seconds. just stupidity though. Like, you know, I don't right. remember the exact, well, yeah. the exact statistics, but it was something like 10 foot flames in a seven foot ceiling or something, you know, yeah, how are you going mean, to do that? You know, I mean, if you, if you follow the guidelines and you applied for a permit, you never would have got one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think they um, asked. I think they went by that, no. you know, ask for forgiveness versus permission thing, right? Absolutely. But they didn't get a chance to ask for forgiveness. They screwed up too badly. So you see, I mean, regulation-wise, you see that side of our industry. I think it's moving in the direction for the better. Yeah. Yep. To create a safer space. And is there um, any, like, I actually, do you guys know Neil Neil's... Thorgerson, who was uh, flying pig whole hog, he created all of that, and he's now got yeah, a company called with, Verge Arrow. 
Yes. Yeah, the, uh, a drone company. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I actually had this conversation with him where, you know, hey, like in the future, are we not going to see fireworks anymore because they're too dangerous or whatever? And instead, we're going to see these drone shows that pretend they're fireworks. And, you know, of course, the instant answer is they move too slowly right now. Like you, you need things that can operate a lot more quickly than that. Mm-hmm. But that maybe at some point in the future, that is a possibility that you could have drones mimic a fireworks show, you know, relatively Absolutely. closely. Yeah, I, I mean, we worked with a partner last year. Stephen was more involved in it with a drone company over, I think it was Singapore, and uh, mounting uh, pyrotechnics to the drones. Yeah. And they created some big cascading looks way oh, up cool. in, you know, some of the big spark waterfalls that you're used to seeing, you know, right. whether it be off a bridge or that, but now it's, yeah. Was that the famous in one in Singapore? Like there was a really, I saw it on yeah. YouTube with hundreds of thousands of views on I like YouTube. The, the guy walking and yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was. You know what? I, I, I think that the, we've gotten this question quite a bit and I don't think that I think it's two different types of entertainment. I right. don't think it's, and, and honestly, like the way I look at it is I look at it on such a simplistic level because like when you look at a drone show, there's these things that are hovering in the sky and they disappear and then they appear again. And it's, and it's like, there's almost this mystery to them and they are and to, to Neil's point. They move a little bit slower with the fireworks the people see this thing tumbling up into the air and there's this unpredictability about what it's going to do. And I think right. that that is like the fascinating part about it. What is this thing going to do yeah. when it, when it meets its point and blows up? And I think the the chemical end of it is like, there's an unpredictability about fireworks that somehow makes them more magical than this very queued up on point. But also Rocco blowing shit up is just cool. Yes. That's all there is to it. You know, drones aren't so cool. Blowing shit up is cool. You know? Yeah. There's like, and, and my, my thing with fireworks is I like the randomness to them and the unpredictability about them. And we have this picture. I like to take pictures of fireworks and we have this big picture in our office in Newcastle of a show that we, it's actually the show that's sitting behind Bob on his zoom background. And um, there was like this wide array of, of comets like underneath. And one of the comets, they're all supposed to be a big fan. And one of them was pointed the wrong direction and it's totally wrong. And I look at that picture all the time and it was a human error, but I look at it and say, that's fireworks for you right yeah. there. That little unpredictable wrong angle. I, that was a fireworks show. So do you it, ever so. do a show where like, you know, something goes up and just totally doesn't behave and does something completely different oh, than sure. what it's supposed to? I sure. mean, I think that's basically what you just said, but yeah, absolutely. That they are somewhat you, unpredictable. You, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I mean, as a, as a pretty uneducated watcher of fireworks only myself um they always pretty much appear to come off perfect you know and i'm always wondering like how do you get stuff to go that high and that big and you always know exactly what it's going to do yeah and the answer is you really don't but you probably just kind of play those odds i guess yeah and that's like the thing about like when i i'm so happy that it caught a lot of media attention was like, I don't know. I think it was in February. These guys out in Colorado, like shot off the, they got the Guinness book of world records for out at steamboat Springs for shooting the largest fireworks 
uh, firework ever. And just the, the, the science behind getting a 3000 pound device that's buried into a side of a mountain and getting it to go, you know, thousands of 1200 feet and then, then essentially break apart and, 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 all of this to behave correctly was fascinating to me. It is one of the concerns that something's going to keep burning on its way down and, and actually injure someone. I mean, that's obviously a concern, right? When you do a show, like for, uh, if you, that's part of your planning process of looking at how much you each each device has a certain setback that it needs to have. So you, these types of things, if that were to happen, it would land in the safe area. Right. Yeah. You're anticipating there's always going to be, from a fireworks standpoint, you're anticipating that there's always something going to be coming down on fire still. Right, right. Yeah. I'm sorry, Bob. I was just going to say we're, you know, in the opposite of, you know, doing a, a concert tour in a stadium, your, your margin for error, you know, you've got concessions, you've got, you know, people's seats that are all sitting around you and you've got this limited space that you're working in. You know, the, the requirements for regulations are a lot smaller in distance to the audience. So yeah. What's that's that? probably why we stick with, you know, a, you know, really only four manufacturers we work with. Right. We because don't limit ourselves. Them. Yeah. We trust them and we use, we use many we use certain product types from certain manufacturers because they happen to make that the best. Right. Yep. And so what, what's it like dealing with the artists when you're either designing a show or getting ready to do a show with an artist or, or whatever? Like, are they generally wanting bigger, better, or are they more scared and have to be so, convinced that it's okay, Bob? You know, I'm not going to blow you up, I promise. It's, uh, it's interesting because it, it really goes both ways. Like, you have some artists that, you know, I've had some wonderful experiences to work with people over my career and we'll do a demo for them. Usually we'll come back to front of house and show them, you know, this is, you know, we'll do the the whole song worth of product and show them this is what the final song is going to look like and let them understand and see it and then walk them through, you know, they'll turn around and be like, that was beautiful. You know, and you get a hug or a handshake and you have other artists and they're like, no, we need more. And then you get the production manager looking at like, we can't afford more. And then, and then certainly like I remember years ago, you know, working with some artists that have had, you know, just completely gun shy, you know, just very, yeah. I don't want to be anywhere near this. So, you know, they're not the, they're not the, the primary member of the band. They're part of the band and someone above them wants the effects and they're like sitting there and you can just, you know, you can see usually the drummer is generally closest to the effects. Right. And he can't and run away. See, He's sitting down. Uh, you <laughs> older start tightening up like yeah. a couple bars before the big cue. And you're yeah. like, oh. yeah. I had remembered once we were doing a, a tour where we had like uh, flame bars on the tour, which was like a sustained you know, sustained flame, you know, granted only, you know, several feet, but it was, it was hot for the artist. Yeah. And, uh, I remember this, this, this group was like, well, do we have to stand here the whole time while these are, cause the, the, the idea was for it to burn for like four or five minutes or whatever for the duration of this song. And the designer was like, you're going to stand there every night <laughs> for uh, the entire song yeah. while this happens. Can't, can't you give us cold pyro? 
Yeah, or can we leave the stage when this is going on? Right. You know, you're going to stand there every night. Right. Well, guys, I appreciate it very much. I, I kind of feel like I've just been to school for an hour and a half here that, uh, uh, you know, because I've always been a big fan of pyro. Like, I've always thought, you know, if, if you had to walk into this industry and kind of pick a direction to go, pyro would be a really cool one because, you know, just the, the ooh and ah thing, you know, the fact that every night you get to make people go, wow, you know, and... Yeah whether it's someone like Motley Crue or, or Metallica or it's a 4th of July fireworks, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm jaded. I'm 55 years old. I've been in this business a long time, but I still love a good fireworks show. You know what I mean? I so, I mean, I mean, it's just really cool what you guys do. I love the family story, Rocco. It's, it's awesome. And I, I'm glad you reached out to me Appreciate because that. I think, uh, uh, you know, I think this has been a lot of fun. So I will send you guys a link to the, uh, to the podcast once it's uploaded it'll be up in an hour or so oh cool well, i appreciate it and thanks for having us on you know and, and thank you for doing this 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 podcast because like you know for me personally it's like i feel that and that myself and bob and, and and you're doing it already we owe it to the generation behind us to leave them something that was that's in a better place than we got it in. And I think that just listening to, I love like listening to, you know, the history that, that, that your podcast takes us on and, and, and it's because that to me is, it's learning too. And you got to learn from the people who create us because my goal and Steven's goal. And I know it's part of Bob's goal is we want to leave something behind that we, we want to take what was given to us and leave it in a and great you, place. And you want to leave so breadcrumbs. How do we get there? You know, you yeah, want to leave exactly. breadcrumbs yeah. behind. And that's the success thing. Like, le- success leaves clues. Of success course. Leaves clues. No, but, uh, but also it's just, it's so much fun hearing people's stories. Uh, you know, for me, that's the, that's the great, you know, hidden pleasure I get from all of this is I'm a fan. Like, believe it or not, yeah. I go back and listen to every podcast. Cause usually when I'm doing the podcast, I'm not, as engaged in it as, as you would be as a listener. I'm, I'm more just kind of driving the podcast and making sure we're, we're covering all the corners and stuff. But, um, I love to go back later that day or the next day or two days later or whatever, and listen to the podcast. And I'll laugh at it sometimes at things that I, you know, may have not even noticed that I said stupid or that they said that was really funny or whatever, but I appreciate the, uh, the appreciation and, uh, and, uh, we'll do it again someday. Cool. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Like fat out in the god old band. Y'all aware I'm the one that